Hello everybody and welcome to episode 2 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm one of your hosts, my name's Tom Major, your other host is Ben Marshall, who sat beside me. Today we're going to be discussing three different papers. Uh, these are sort of broadly focusing on, I guess, the closest group we could put them all in would be habitats. Habitats and space is how I would yeah. group them. Yeah. But space in the sense of like the use of space on the on the earth. Oh yeah, not space snakes. <laughs> yeah. Not like aeronautical space animals. <laughs> Haven't got that far yet. Chinese dragons. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, we've got three papers to discuss today. Like I say broadly about space. One about frogs and a couple about snakes. And then we're going to round off the episode with our regular feature on a newly discovered species. Except for this week. We do have two. Yeah, there's more than one, which is pretty awesome. So be excited for a double whammy. And they're both quite cool as well. Well, of course they're going to be cool. We're not going to... Well, I suppose we could highlight a really boring species, but there'd be something cool about it, even if it was boring on the outside. I I, I wholeheartedly agree. Right, so um, with that, should we get into the first paper? Let's do it. Excellent. So um, the first one is entitled The Importance of Ambient Sound Level to Characterise Anurin Habitats. This was published in 2013 by Goutte, Dubois and Legendre. Which journal was this been? Plus one. Plus one. Excellent. Mm. All open access and lovely. You can go read it yourself. Please do. And correct us on everything we're about to tell you that's wrong about it. <laughs> I don't think we'll... Well. I hope not everything's wrong. <laughs> I think I've got a pretty firm understanding of this one. I think so. It's quite complicated, though, and I think um, frogs isn't really an area that I would ordinarily be reading about. No, not not uh, frog natural history, certainly. I read a bit about anurans when they're consumed as prey items, but usually not uh, yeah. for their own... I suppose that's quite a big focus of your research, is that? So you would be reading about frogs, but me yeah. not so much. <laughs> Cool. So, uh, yeah, the basic concept of this paper is that um, what the authors call ambient sound pressure level, which is basically just the noise, the noise in the environment, is, well, or should be a predictor of where frogs choose to be. It should be a predictor of habitat selection for frogs. Yes. Acoustics of whatever chosen environment is going to have a direct impact on the species using that environment. Yeah, and you can imagine it in terms of some species can handle really loud noises, whereas other species like it where it's nice and quiet, which could have... It's obviously not just their preference. It actually factors into their ecology. Some species are more noisy than others. Some species require quiet habitat, etc., etc. Well, exactly. I mean, species use noise for a lot of different purposes. It's for, well, obviously communication, but a whole array of... Behaviors. I mean, it's going to influence mating interactions. It's going to influence territorial interactions. A lot of species use it for orientation. You're talking about bats. Well, I'm talking about bats, but I'm sure there are other species other than bats that yeah, use it. Dolphins. There's a whole bunch of aquatic, yeah. yeah, aquatic creatures that do. Essentially, noise is an important aspect of the world as animals perceive it, and. It's seemingly an area which has received little attention in herpetological research. Yes. At least that's how it's put across in the introduction of this paper. Well, it certainly feels like it's a good justification, regardless of how much it's been done before, to do some more. Yeah. And to focus in on frogs. Yeah, I mean, 
there's lots and lots and lots of research out there about the effects of noise on marine mammals, the effects of noise on fish. I read one of the references they use in this paper, actually, was from Picolin et al., 2012. Botched that name. Sorry, Picolin. And uh, they were studying a fish called the brown meager, which is... Like, it's a disappointing name for that fish. Yeah, meager and brown. Meager. Yeah, mm. I I haven't actually googled what the fish looks like. It's probably really. really... <laughs> I would presume that it's the smallest, most nondescript looking <laughs> fish. Yeah, but then again, it's big enough that it's warranted this study on it. So maybe it does look kind of cool. Or maybe it's just really cheap. Yeah, and maybe. easy to like raise in captivity. <laughs> yeah, I think they did these on wild fish. I'm, I I think so. Yeah, just don't common then. Yeah, maybe maybe. Um, who knows? Well, but yeah, they basically, um, they drove boats over the fish and these fish use uh, sounds as a means of gathering together during their breeding season. So basically they all make a noise and it attracts them all to come to one place and spawn. Um, and when they flew boats, when they flew, when they drove boat, what do you call it when you're driving? Is it driving a boat? Well, it would be sailing. Sailing, but, but with an engine. With a- because otherwise a sailing boat would be silent and would kind of ruin the point of their noise study. Probably drive a boat. Then. Yeah, you drive, <laughs> they drove the boats. Anyway, they drove the boats over these fish. And when there were boats going over, the fish actually produced more sounds. And they think, they're not 100%, but they think it's because they're making an allowance for the boats. So they're compensating for the interference that the boats are causing. Exactly. And that's actually the word they use is like compensation behavior. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense, like... I mean, it's very easy to empathise with these fish when you're at a if you're at a gig or something. You don't just speak in a normal voice because you won't be heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then that's an important point which they do bring up in the paper is that this sort of research is is key for species being having their natural ranges encroached upon by roads and noisy human activity. I think that's a big deal and something that probably hasn't garnered much attention mm. certainly in the world of herbs because so many herbs well number one they're just understudied in general but two a lot of herbs don't really require sound all that dramatically I yeah. mean you, you snakes certainly well everyone also concentrates when you think about a road everyone concentrates on road mortality because so many animals get run over yeah same with boats if you think about at least to me if someone said to me boats impacting wildlife I'd think of you know Collisions. your adorable sea cows getting hit by yeah <laughs> But actually, that that paper actually got me thinking in a different way in terms of the marine environment is a space which animals require to communicate within. And when there's lots of noise going on, it reduces the space that they have that they can allocate for that. And it actually diminishes the habitat for them in quite an interesting and profound way. Yes, yes. And getting back to paper, that's exactly what they're investigating is whether some frogs are better suited to dealing with higher noise environments than others. Granted, this is a purely natural environment study, but the same lessons will be able to be applied to anthropogenic environments. Absolutely. But yeah, regarding frogs themselves, I read a paper, another one which came as a reference in this paper, by um, B. and Swanson. And um, they actually experimentally manipulated grey tree frogs, and they played them different sounds... Mm. and they were working out which sounds impacted on a frog's ability to understand the calls it was hearing and high levels of traffic noise actually caused the same amount of confusion with the frog working out which direction the sound was coming from as a cacophony of other frogs 
Mm. So traffic is equivalent to a cacophony of frogs. That was in Grey Tree Frogs, which I think is quite cool and quite telling. Yeah, I mean, that's a big deal, really. If, if you're, you know, that's noise pollution, that is a form of pollution. If your pollution is getting in the way of animals functioning, you should be taking that into account when you're planning to, con- well, presumably conserve these species. Yeah, absolutely. So what these guys were, were looking at specifically were investigating torrent frogs versus non-torrent frogs or stream frogs. It's largely largely accepted and divided taxonomically and to a certain extent in the natural history that you have frogs that are well adapted to torrents and frogs that are well adapted to streams. And they went out to test whether the sound in the environment played a role in these frogs being in one area or another. Torrents obviously being louder, streams being quieter. So essentially what you're saying is there was, in the literature traditionally, there are two types of frogs broadly that live by rivers. Yes. And those are torrent frogs. And stream frogs. And stream frogs. Stream being calm, quiet places and torrent being really loud, fast flowing. Yeah, your traditional upper course right. river systems. Yeah. Gotcha. So what they did was go across Southeast Asia to China, Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, and sampled along different river systems, found out what frogs there were, but then also took a wide range of environmental measurements, ranging from all the physical characteristics of the stream and the river systems, that'd be slope and depth of the water, temperature of the water, a whole range of things. And then also on top of that, taking this ambient sound pressure measurement, which is essentially background noise, how, how loud this this river system was. They actually recorded data on 134 frogs from 34 species, which is quite an impressive number, really. It's a pretty good sample size, yeah. They must have been getting pretty good at IDing those frogs. Well, I think if you're recording sound, I presume a lot of the ID was done off uh, yeah. auditory. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Because I know that's very important for birds. Picking out species is way easier, or can be way easier, done on call than it is... Uh, Provided you know what you're listening to. Morphology. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, like you say, they measured a few aspects of the frog's habitat, The one of which was the ambient sound, air temperature, water temperature, water depth, substrate, which is what the frog was sitting on. Yeah, they were pretty, they were pretty damn thorough. Yes. And what that allowed them to do was throw all these different factors into a big old bit of stats called principal component analysis, which is your go-to for multivariate analysis. And what this will do is give you an idea of what variables are predominantly driving whatever pattern you've found. Yeah. I don't feel like that's as well explained as it could be. It's one of those ones which is easier to explain by looking at it. You basically just mash up your variables into a soup and then... Yes, you pull out these these pseudo-variables that have aspects of all the things you've measured. Yeah. And then they give you like a little... They give you a graph next to your other graph with arrows on it to show you which variables are pulling it which way. So it's easy... Yes, yeah. Well, in this case, all your points for the different frog species... And all your variables were the environmental variables. So what you'd expect all the frogs found in one area to all be grouped together. And the reason they're grouped together is because they've all put there because of certain characteristics that should, in theory, be linked to 
you know, torrent or stream or whatever. And that's what the PCR does is, is work out which variables did that. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's an excellent description, actually. Well, at least what you visualizes it in, in some way. Yeah, and what you end up with is just a normal graph with loads and loads of points on it, and they're sort of clustered together, and those are your groups of frogs, which hopefully, if, if, if all goes to plan, correspond to what you're expecting to be torrent frogs and stream frogs. And what did they find out, Ben? Well, it worked rather well. Um, all their frog species were rather successfully separated into three... Um, what's the right word? Clusters. Clusters is one, but there's another word which I'm thinking of that isn't clade guild. Three guilds. Three guilds, yes. And it, it worked rather spectacularly, really. You had one, one guild that was defined by living in loud, cold, narrow, steep, rocky streams. Sounds like a torrent to me. Classic torrent frogs, <laughs> yeah. And then you had one that was, they called pond, which was more quiet, flat areas, shallower, more leaf litter around, uh, poorly vegetated sides. But you also, unlike what had previously been said in the literature, that was this very nice clean cut between torrent and stream, you also had rivers and lakes, which was a sort of middle ground between the two. We had large, warm bodies of water with a medium level of loudness, much deeper than what your ponds were. So you had these three guilds, three groups so of frogs. You had, you had torrents, torrents. You had ponds, ponds, and you had rivers and lakes. Rivers and lakes. So what? Rivers and lakes is kind of what would be stream, is it? Because we kind of lost stream there. Yes, well, I think stream was essentially used as a catch-all for anything that wasn't torrent. Ah, so they've actually further subdivided it into three. Feels more refined, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a bit more detail. Yeah. So, slope is something which a lot of other studies have used as a variable in determining frog habitat before, which yes. is kind of a, a proxy for this torrent or stream. Yes, it was important in defining these torrent upper course river systems mm. with their steep sides and their steep flow, as it turns out, generating all that noise probably. Yeah, I found it quite funny in, because in their introduction, sorry, no, in their discussion, they were saying, you know, oh, everyone uses slope, but slope's so lame. Like slope's really <laughs> bad for all these reasons. And despite the fact that I'd never actually come across slope as a measurement of frog habitat before, I was livid that it was so in such common usage. Well, it was common usage, but completely unstandardized, it seemed. Like different studies had different methods of measuring it. So nothing was as comparable as it could have been. Just, and you would have thought something, it feels quite simple, slope. <laughs> yeah, you'd think you could measure it. With, but it's quite impractical to measure. Get the protractor out. I don't know why everyone has such a big time. Or it be with those uh, laser uh, yeah. rangefinders. The ones you see all the geology students yeah, yeah. playing around with. Well, geology students from the right universities. I never got to play around with a laser, laser viewfinder. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry that happened. Um, yeah, so overall their findings were that they managed to categorise the frogs into three separate distinct groups really successfully. And they kind of recommend that in the future, this ambient sound pressure level, noise level of the environment should be included as an important variable. A massively important variable. I mean, not just because it 
did a better job of explaining these patterns of where these frogs were, but it incorporates a lot of other variables like slope, which are not particularly standardized and quite difficult to measure. So you can go out there, you've got a new cheap method of quantifying torrent, stream, pond, you know, whatever you want to call your guilds, but quantifying that noise and knowing that it's going to be quite key in defining which species are there or not. This could be so important because think how many frogs there are at the moment in secure facilities in captivity that are on the brink of extinction and people think that they're planning to reintroduce them to sites which are similar and they probably are quite similar. Yes, but here's another way of getting it even better, right? Exactly, yeah, because you can just go there with a tape recorder where you collected them and then go to the place you're planning to release them and if it's significantly different, you know, obviously this requires a lot more research but you could be doing exactly the wrong thing if it's a lot louder or a lot quieter. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a refinement of existing yeah. existing ideas. Excellent. So there was some surprising results for some of the individual species in their results section. They noted a few frogs which kind of came as a bit of a surprise in terms of what habitat they liked compared to what previous studies of their natural history had suggested. So there were some which just didn't fit. One of which had like one of the best scientific names that I've come across in recent times, Orderana schmackerai. Mm. <laughs> schmackerai. Schmackerai just sort of rolls off the tongue nicely, yeah, doesn't it? it does. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But anyway, this Orderana schmackerai, their common name is actually torrent frogs, and that mm. that common name applies to the entire genus of Orderana. But they actually found them in quiet, flat streams, which put them in the rivers and lakes grouping. So. Their common name actually turned out to not make a massive amount of sense. Well, exactly. You've got to start asking questions over the validity of some of the previous natural history notes. I don't know how much research has been done on these these torrent frogs, mm. but clearly that common common name slash guild they've been put in is, is slightly, or at least needs re-examining. It could, all these things could get doubly as confusing though, because if you get a species with a lot of plasticity, it might have... Yes, it might just be a very good generalist that is actually jumping between the two and during this sampling period. Yeah. They happen to be in one and not the other. Same time, the natural history notes that that name is based on could be from, I don't know, the 19th century, and no one's updated them, and that's just the best we've got currently. Likewise, there was another one called Hylorana picturata, um, which is called a spotted stream frog, but that was found by a torrent, so that one's gone the other way. Yes. But the, um, the study may demonstrate a bit of um, previously unknown plasticity in the choice of calling habitats for a lot of these frogs. Mm. So, yeah, plasticity is just adaptability, really, isn't it? Yeah, flexibility. Yeah. And it can be either within a species or even down to an individual level. Mm. Yeah. And behavioral plasticity is just animals that can behave in different ways. I mean, another... We're talking about these generalist species being adaptable. But what's also cool is these specialist species that have adapted to living in the torrents. Uh, we have frogs that cool at different frequencies. So uh, water noise tends to be around 1.5 kilohertz. And so you've got frogs that deliberately cool or have evolved to cool in frequencies that don't interfere or cannot be interfered with the water noise. So it'd be ultrasonic or what have you. Um, others have sort of given up with the cooling bit and gone for a more visual 
visual way of got uh, dealing with that. We've got black spotted rock skippers. So that's Satorus gutterus, and those guys wave their back legs. Got a, a video in the show notes that you can take a look at of this little guy sitting on a rock doing his little leg wave. And more famously than those, perhaps, are the Panamanian golden frogs, which aren't actually a frog, for one thing. They're uh, true toads. They're infinite. <laughs> it's a faux pas there. Yeah. Atalopus zateki, which I think everybody might know from if they've seen Attenborough's Life in Cold Blood. The... They're the wonderful little golden frogs oh, that yeah, do, yeah. The, do the little wave, and there's a guy studying them with a, a fake frog on a stick that he's got a little string that makes him wave and he's studying how they uh, dealt with how they dealt with communication in the torrent system. Unfortunately, they're horribly endangered, like brink of disappearing because of uh, chytridiomycosis, that horrific fungus which is sweeping through South America and other places. Yeah, possibly the biggest threat to herpetofauna on the planet, obviously aside from humans, but we are inadvertently spreading it in some cases Well, that's as well. that's the thing, is it is partly down to us, not just the spreading, but there's all sorts of theories that just a warming climate is making these sort of funguses a bit more uh, virulent, I guess is the right word, although that's derived from virus, so maybe that's not the right word. <laughs> Semantics. You know, we know, you you know prominent. They're spreading more. Yeah. It's hotter. Yeah. Um, well, so the waving frogs... It would be a shame to wave them goodbye. Yeah, that um, yeah. <laughs> Should I, is it is it appropriate to make jokes about extinction? Probably not. It's probably the only way to continue. I think if you don't put a, a sort of jovial face on some of the extinction stories, you you just give up. I mean, it's so dire some of these frogs and how quickly they've been lost. There's eighty ninety percent reduction in populations over there. Where is that? Well, Latin America, Latin America. Panama. Mm-hmm. Brutal. But, yeah, on that slightly sad note, we should probably wrap up this paper. Mm. Um, if you are planning any research, be it conservation-based or otherwise, obviously conservation-based, excellent always, consider bringing in sound pressure level as a precise and quick measure of frog habitat that you can really easily do on the cheap as well, which is always good. Um, well, it's something that should be expanded upon. I think this is a a very good avenue for research to go down. It's, it's very interesting. It gives a little bit of an insight into how the frogs perceive their environment, which I think is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of the coolest things about it as well. Sensory ecology. I mean, like the previous episode, sensory ecology, it is just awesome to be able to know what these animals are experiencing yes and how it influences them it garners a nice bit of empathy as well it does yeah then you can talk about it yeah they're not just mindless beasts going through the motions they actually are selecting where they're at for good reason well anyway should uh, should we press on to the second paper yeah slightly different study species this time this paper is entitled Using Multiscale Spatial Models to Assess Potential Surrogate Habitat for an Impelled Reptile. Uh, this one is by Phil, Waldron, Welch, Gibbons, Bennett and Mousseau, published in PLOS One just recently, wasn't it? 2015. Um, and this one's really cool as well. It's about eastern diamondback rattlesnakes 
Cretalus Adamantius. I mean, they're a ginormous viper. Definitely up there. My, my One of my favourites. I don't know, I probably prefer vipers that live in trees, but big fat ones that live on the ground are also pretty cool in my They're pretty charismatic, yeah. yeah. I mean, just when you get the big snakes, you're talking about a charismatic animal, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. They are like truly badass. One of the coolest snakes going. World's biggest round snake. Over two metres long. As big around as like a an orange or maybe even a grapefruit. They're big snakes. They're pretty chunky. Yeah. yeah. Um, so named for their distinctive diamond pattern across the back. Really striking snake. If you were to imagine one of these snakes, imagine a really heavily bodied, extremely distinct head, kind of a tan to brown background color with big, thick, darker gray or brown, sometimes even close to black diamonds. And the diamonds on the back are fringed with like a cream or a white, so they really stand out. Obviously, this works extremely well as camouflage, but once you've spotted one, they're very striking. They are striking in all senses of the word. <laughs> yeah, really cool. Yeah, and this study, essentially, their habitat is massively imperiled, hence the title of the paper. So the preferred habitat of this species is longleaf pine savanna, and in the southeastern United States, this is a habitat which is like dramatically decreasing. It doesn't get much more dismal than this. There's only about yeah. 5% of what was 37 million hectares remaining. What well, comes a cropper because of a lot of fire suppression and fire management. Obviously, whole human development angle on it, and it's a classic sort of environment that takes a hit. Yeah. So the point of this study was to kind of work out what exactly was the habitat of these snakes in an effort to then find similar habitat that they could be moved to yes. in the case Sur surrogate habitat, surrogate habitat yeah. in a case where their habitat was gone or they wanted to reintroduce them as a means of conserving the species. Yes. Or well, it's an additional aspect you've got to take into account when quantifying how much space sea snakes have left. Because if they're perfectly capable of living in a bit of habitat next door, then that does decrease the priority of pine savanna if they are more flexible. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, if it's the case that they can live. What was the example in this paper? It was the uh, marsh, wasn't it? Yeah, so they were looking or had the idea that marsh may be able to, this sort of lowland marsh area might be able to act as a surrogate for them because of similarities in prey density and vegetation composition. And the way they did this was using predominantly radio telemetry where they cut open the snake and put a tiny little radio transmitter inside the body cavity. Um, and then what that does is that emits a signal which is converted into a beep with a little machine. And the researcher has an aerial and a little beeping machine, and they go out into the forest. And Te technical term, they're beeping machine. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a receiver. And uh, they basically just follow the beeps. And eventually, if they follow the beeps well enough, they'll find a rattlesnake sitting and doing whatever it is it might be doing. Yeah, I mean, this, this methodology, this use of radio telemetry is so critical for a lot of snake studies because... Snakes are incredibly hard to find. And even when you do find an individual, to do anything about quantifying its, its habitat use over a period of time, you've got to find that snake again and again and again. And that's really, really tough. And snakes are famously cryptic. There is a good sort of summary 
paper that looks into all the different ways people have gone about overcoming snake crypsis when it comes to ecological studies. And that's by uh, Durso and Siegel uh, in 2015. A snake in the hand is worth 10,000 in the bush, published in the Journal of Herpetology. That says it all, doesn't it? A snake in the hand is worth 10,000 in the bush. Yes, I mean, that's a great title, but that it's a nice little review paper that gives a, a good overview and a lot of different references to follow up if anybody wants to know more about how to deal with imperfect detectability in, uh, well, specifically snakes. Really telemetry is a uh, method, something we've both got experience with, and I love it. I know you love it too. It's, it is great. For snakes, it, it is the best thing we've got, without doubt. Yeah, it's the best thing I know of, certainly for getting this individual data. I, I mean, there are very tentative studies using GPS yeah, in that's... the States, but very expensive and can't be implanted. So that means that you've got to be working either with very short periods of time in between snake sheds and they, they uh, lose the, uh, the unit. And I believe the study that's currently investigating it is, again, on rattlesnakes. And that's only really going ahead because they can attach it to the rattle. Yeah. That's absolutely Which right. keeps it out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, so basically radio telemetry is the best method we have right now for dealing with snakes on an individual level. There's nothing else that can really be done on a lot of species without greatly interfering with their behavior, at least with this sort of implanted radio telemetry. Uh, depending on the species, obviously, you're probably not going to be altering their behavior that much. And you get a really, really in-depth, close insight to these snakes, well, potentially hourly movement if you want to put the effort in. I think these guys went and checked on their snakes every two weeks outside of the active season and then bumped that up to every week during the active season because naturally the snakes are going to be moving more that during that time. And the other neat bit with having a radio telemetry like that and going out and seeing them every week is that you have a decent opportunity to see your individuals, your study animals, do some really cool behavior out there. These guys were pushing to see their snakes and locate their snakes every time. So they were trying to get behavioral observations as well as spatial observations. They certainly had the opportunity to, whether that was an actual consideration for their methods. I think it was more just... The snakes like sitting out. Making sure, yeah, making sure they knew exactly where it was and to take all these corresponding environmental measurements on cover usage, habitat type... Yeah, position of the snake, things like that. Cool. So, um, shall we shall we get into the results of this paper? Yes. So, you mentioned the multi-scale aspect of this study. Yes. What they're doing is, as I said, going out every week or two weeks, finding where the snake is, and plotting that on a rather lovely map, which also has data on land use habitat. In fact, they got their cover from... LIDAR data. Light detection and ranging, it stands for. Which is pretty new. It's, it's pretty awesome. advanced. It's extremely advanced. And they really underplayed it, I thought. Like, it's a big deal that they had access to this because it's very unusual that there is coverage for this. It's getting more more commonly done. Yes, it's getting cheaper all the time, like it's everything, essentially technology-wise, anyway. Yeah, essentially what they do is they fly over the landscape in either a plane or a drone firing lasers at the ground as they go. And it's kind of like echolocation, but more advanced because lasers. And um, <laughs> based on what bounces back, 
of the laser. They can tell what was underneath it. And what's cool is it, unlike sound, it can actually penetrate because it's light. It can penetrate leaves. So it goes through the trees all the way to the ground and then it bounces back up. And then what you see in your little readout tells you what's beneath you. And with that, you can actually create a really accurate three-dimensional map of not only the topography, but also the vegetation. Yes. And that turned out to be critical. Well, is critical for this study because that's what they want to work out. It's these very low-scale environmental characteristics because that's what you're going to be building your surrogate habitat on is them sharing these characteristics. If you can't measure that, then it'd be quite difficult to say what bits of that habitat these snakes are looking for. It would just be them using it or not. Precisely. If these, For example, if these snakes spend 90% of their time ambushing under low-lying shrubs and you're trying to put them in a habitat with loads of grass and no low-lying shrubs, they're going to do really badly. Yeah, precisely. The first scale is their home range scale. So they were looking at, did the snakes pick areas near the pine savanna, encompassing the pine savanna, or did they pick home ranges that were based on where the marshes were? And flat out, fully, these snakes, all their home ranges in this, this landscape, all gravitated towards pine savanna. They were all selected to cover pine savanna. Some of them sort of overlap with other bits of habitat and encompass other non-pine savanna habitats, but it was very clear that they were choosing where they were in the landscape based on the availability of this pine savanna. Mm-hmm. So what about, you? that was obviously the landscape scale. In mm. this study, they referred to it as home range scale. A little bit confusing, but never yes, mind. Yes, because their next level down was within home range. Yeah. And... So the within home range, they were looking more at what cover type and vegetation type the snakes preferred. And they largely avoided fully open areas like fields. That's seen quite commonly across a lot of snake species. These big open uh, pastoral sort of systems aren't really used by much wildlife. There's numerous reasons for that, of course. Birds, you know, thermoregulation, all sorts of stuff. Well, I mean, you're just, yeah, you're so exposed to everything. But counter to that, they also didn't use any closed canopy areas. It was very important that they weren't using full-blown pine forest. They were using this intermediary pine savanna, which is still open canopy. And that was what one of the hypotheses that they might use the marshland was based on, was it had no massive canopy cover. So in the end of the day, they found that, okay, staying near the pine savanna, making use of the cover types found there, this mid-level cover, and they found that these snakes, yeah, they did venture into the marshes to a certain extent in areas with similar cover, but it was very much a secondary thing. They, they gravitated fully to that pine savanna and the marsh was used marginally. Right. So um, in many ways, the study looking for the surrogate habitat was a bit of a failure because it seems as though it's not a particularly suitable surrogate. Well, in terms of, yeah, if you wanted to use marsh to help protect the eastern diamondbacks, it doesn't look like it's worth it. The bright side, the bonus is, you can now turn around and say, hey, we've got to protect this pine savanna because they really need it. And that's fantastic for a whole bunch of other species. The pine savanna is a very unique and special place. I, I mentioned the sort of fire regime. That gives a lot of life. There's a lot of interesting, specialised species to deal with well, now very threatened habitat type. Mm. 
quite good in one respect, like you say. It could work out that the Eastern Diamondback as a charismatic species can now justifiably be used to warrant a lot of conservation of pine savannah. So, you'd, you'd hope so. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah. Not the most popular animal in America amongst everybody, but it does have a lot. Of, there is well, a lot of love for rattlesnakes. I, I think there should be more love for a lot of these snakes because they're very important meso predators. They, they keep down a lot of lower species and uh, obviously provide food to a lot of big hawks and that sort of thing. They're, they're critical. Mm, absolutely. Excellent. So there we go. Protalus adamantius not going to be existing in marshland anytime soon. Hmm. And a good example of radio telemetry overcoming snake crypsis. Yeah, very cool. While we're on the subject of uh, radio telemetry overcoming crypsis, well, I think that segues nicely into our next paper. It does, absolutely, yeah. Another radio telemetry paper. Yep, what's this one then? This is the influence of sex and season on large conspecific spatial overlap in a large actively foraging colubrid snake. That rolls off the tongue. It's a bit of a mouthful. This was published 2016, again in Plus One, so it's all open access and available to everyone. Uh, written by Balder, Brengener, Bolt, Ligar, Jenkins, Rovermel, and McGarrigal. So these guys were staying in the States, but instead of looking at uh, eastern diamondbacks, they were looking at eastern indigo snakes, which is Drymarchoron cooperi. They're very cool snakes as well. Mm. Huge jet black colubrids. Colubrids, we should probably describe what they are. They're um big old family of snakes. The they biggest. Were the biggest? They are the biggest. I'm not surprised. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think at their height, it covers something like 1,800 species or something ridiculous. I'm always impressed by your knowledge of taxonomy. Yeah. Good start. They're, um... <laughs> the, the good thing with taxonomy is it, it changes so often and so frequently. <laughs> I could almost say any number and eventually I'd be correct. <laughs> well said. Like, I, I can't give you any guarantee that that number is up to date. Or actually, it's height. But at some point, somewhere, <laughs> it was definitely 1,800 species. Colubridae, then. Just massive family. Huge. It's shrinking as people do more phylogenetic research and split it up and realise that actually having one ginormous family doesn't really suitably describe the diversity of snakes that exist. No, and it's not the most helpful way of going about it, is it? No, it's not. It certainly isn't. But... Dromarchron cooperi, really cool, big, like I said, jet black snake. It eats pretty much anything it comes across, doesn't it? It'll eat snakes, frogs, lizards, birds, mammals, you name it. Just your classic big old generalist. So the, the general idea behind this paper was that there is not a lot of understanding regarding how individual snakes split up the habitat between themselves. Yes, there hasn't been... I mean, there's been some work, but there hasn't been a great deal of work on niche partitioning of snakes. So that's snakes sharing the same environment, but using different aspects of it. So they're not in direct competition. Yeah, exactly. When you think about other sort of carnivores that exist, we know quite a lot about how they split up the habitat. Thinking like lions and prides of lions and stuff like that. They all have really distinct territories. Or one example of Snakes is seen in uh, Trumerosaurus macrops. Or Cryptelotrops now. The large-eyed green pit viper. 
where you'd see both males and females occupying a slightly different niche in their environment, so they're not competing with members of their own species. And that's where you also get a slight sexual dimorphism between the males and females, females having a larger gait than the males. Yeah, essentially the females can fit bigger things into their mouths, so that once they're fully grown, males and females aren't competing as much because they're eating different things. Yeah, that paper was um, Strine et al. in 2015, Amphibia reptilia. The females had the big mouths and ate different things to the males, which is really cool. Mm. We talk about it as if it's stone-cold fact, but they did only suggest that the reason for the males and females having different sized heads and bodies was so that they could eat different things. They didn't prove it. It just, that would make a lot of sense. Mm. Obviously, there's other factors that come into play when you think that a female is going to be bigger, not least among them the fact that pit vipers have live young so she's gonna to have to sit there and gestate a lot of babies and if you've got a bigger belly you can have more of those yes. and given that reptiles have a tendency to spatter the ground with as many babies as possible in an, effort, <laughs> in an effort to help one survive to maturity it could well be that rather than the food thing but regardless it would seem that they eat different things so you know it's a convincing argument yeah and that's sort of the point of this paper too is exploring that difference between sexes and how they use the environment. So like the previous one, they're doing radio telemetry again, using implanted radio transmitters, and they followed around a total of 57 snakes, which is a seriously impressive sample size for a radio telemetry study, mainly just cost. Radio telemetry is not exactly a cheap method to pick. We've said all its benefits, but it ain't cheap. You're looking at $100 a transmitter. Yeah. So they were looking at whether or not males and females existed in the same area and if they shared habitat, essentially. And what they found out was quite interesting. Although I can't say I found it massively surprising. It kind of confirmed what I would have suspected. Yeah, so what they found, essentially, that the males had these big, expansive home ranges, whereas the females were much more restricted and what was neat was they didn't just have this snapshot in time of the home ranges, but they had they followed these snakes all season round, so you had the stuff happening during the breeding season, and also behaviour or movements detected outside of the breeding season. And what they saw was this marked difference in where the snakes' ranges were. During the breeding season, you had the males completely envelop the female home ranges, Makes a lot of sense. It's breeding season. They're going to be tracking down these females. Then outside of the breeding season, in this sort of active season, they've shifted away from the females a little bit, but there's still a degree of overlap. Yeah, that's interesting because you'd think, theoretically, that the lower the level of spatial overlap, the more success the snakes would have because they'd be competing less for resources. So it's kind of inherent then that there's some kind of benefit for them to gain in overlapping their habitat. Unless, of course, they're only doing it because they're restricted. But like you said about the breeding season, I mean, that's a clear indicator that the males were looking for the females, or vice versa, mm. possibly. Well, I think what they showed was that the females did stay relatively stationary. Their ranges didn't fluctuate to the same extent as the males. But then the males came to envelop those ranges when the yeah. breeding season occurred. But what you meant saying with the still slight level of overlap, one of the ideas they suggested in this paper was that a sort of exclusionary tactic. They were maintaining 
some level of presence near their female to prevent other males or, or discourage other males from going after her. Interesting. That would make, I mean, that would make sense in terms of snake biology because they're really, really good at picking up. They call them pomeranasal cues. Just like they smell things yes. very in, acutely. There's a great paper looking at that by uh, Scott Whiting Webb and Shine in 2013 called The Chemosensory Discrimination of Social Cues Mediate Space Use in Snakes. And that was in animal behaviour. And there they found that snakes were picking up all these cues and that would give them a lot more information about a different individual than perhaps would even think possible. That's and really that was cool. a really sophisticated behaviour. Yeah. So, wow. What kind of snakes were those? Those were Cryptophis nigersons. That's an Australian one, isn't it? Yes, Cryptophis. I think so. Is that an Australian lapid? Is that a ringneck It is snake? an lapid. So their common name is small-eyed snake. Small-eyed snake, a.k.a. small-eyed sneaky little guy. <laughs> <laughs> Still, that sounds cool. That's a good paper there from Shine, one of the heavy hitters of herpetology. Yeah, I mean, these, I don't know how many papers he's been involved in, but it's a hell of a lot, and a lot of them are very insightful. Yeah, big time. So this idea of snakes defending their territory is quite cool. It's kind of a departure from how we perceive snakes, or at least I perceive snakes generally. I perceive them as sort of very solitary, going about their business, doing their own thing. But then I guess there are other examples where snakes do interact with each other, sometimes quite violently. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if territorial is the right word, because they didn't, these snakes in this study didn't show uh, behaviour that would be associated oh. with that. They didn't patrol the outside of their range or anything like that. So that exclusionary stuff then would be distinct from territoriality because the exclusionary thing is kind of incidental on the part of the snake which is excluding the other one. The snake that's just going about its business leaving a scent is then indirectly excluding the other one because when it finds the scent, it doesn't want to go there. Yeah, it didn't. there didn't seem to be patterns of active territorial behaviour like yeah. you'd expect from other species, like patrolling the edge of their home range. That didn't seem to happen though. Right. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to untie the mechanisms behind the behaviours they exhibit because it could. I've not seen a topographical map of these home ranges. It could be that there's literal caverns and... All good prey availability. There's, there's a lot of different... Rodent runs, yeah. Yeah, a lot of different aspects that can play into how snakes use their home ranges, absolutely. It's really cool. Really interesting trying to pick apart what it is that they're up to. Um, yeah, get inside the snake's mind. Yeah. Those little, little devils. <laughs> yeah, because not just that they're not showing this territoriality, but the males, there isn't a massive amount of overlap between the males' home ranges. They're quite separated off from each other, and they have their own females as well. Within those ranges. And the females' ranges aren't overlapping either. So there are sort of these distinct units, which do get a little bit sort of mixed during breeding, but that seems to be just because the snakes are moving around more. So interestingly, one of the things they pick out in their discussion is that of the 19 reports or which gave detailed information on snake home ranges, 15, which is 79%, actually found that there was a lot of home range overlap amongst snakes. Mm. Um, well, I think that's something that needs some additional detail attached to it. 
because there are thoughts that your big active colubrids are not going to be able to live in the same densities as your sit and wait vipers, for example. Um, that's certainly something they suggest should be looked into in more detail and becomes quite important when you think about human encroachment into snake habitats and how far can you push snakes together into a smaller area until you start losing population through, well, I suppose oversaturation would be the word for it. Yeah, definitely. It does bring to mind those YouTube videos of snake catchers <laughs> yes. letting go of all the snakes they've allegedly rescued. Just open a massive sack in the woods. There you go, guys. It's not sustainable practice, is it? Yeah, it seems to lack a little bit of, um, <laughs> I was going to say subtlety, but doesn't make that much ecological sense to release them all at the same time in the same place. I know there's a sort of practical limitation there, but... Yeah, it's a really difficult Oof. one because yeah. these guys are just... Well, these people are just... They're rescuing people, really, from venomous snakes that they find in their houses and then they kind of incidentally... I'm sure the snakes are getting a better chance being released in the sack of other snakes, <laughs> but I just wish there was a slightly better way of doing it. Yeah, definitely. So, sort of to summarize what this paper's done they've looked at the home ranges of males and females of this eastern indigo snake found that the males have quite separated home ranges with very little overlap females also don't overlap with other females quite separate have considerably smaller home ranges and in the breeding season you see a change of where these home ranges are the the males only had a small overlap with the females presumably to reduce competition that changes up, and they shift in closer to the females, completely encompass them. As a form of, well, seemingly as a form of mate guarding of some description. Or well, maybe mate guarding, but it could just be an artifact of searching for those females yeah. in their range and using all their time as close to the female as possible. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. It does, yes. And it's, I mean, I really recommend people track down the, uh, track down the paper and have a look at the figures, because it there's a very clear shift from breeding season to non-breeding season, especially for the males. Yeah, your description there was excellent, but it's one of those things where you see it on well on a screen, and it really is abundantly clear exactly what these things are up to. Yeah, guess what? Something about space is better demonstrated by seeing it in space. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, excellent. Well, brilliant. Another great paper, and like we said earlier, it's available completely free if you want to check it out. Just it's on Plus One website. We'll put the link in there in the yeah, description. All the links to all the papers we've mentioned will, will be in the show notes, along with those couple of videos I mentioned about waving frogs. Oh yeah, I'm going to watch that. Yeah, they're quite good. <laughs> <laughs> so that rounds up our three scientific publications. Uh, now we're going to move on to a couple of species descriptions, which admittedly are species also... of the bi week. Do you mean? Yes, yeah, species of the bi week. We need a jingle. Yeah, we do. So the first species we're going to talk about is a so-called cat-eyed snake, and it comes from the paper The Cat-Eyed Snakes of Madagascar, Phylogeny and Description of a New Species of Madagascarophis Serpentes Lamprophidae from the Singhi of Ankarana by Ryan Berbrink and Randria Mahatansoa and Praxworthy. So, I mean, what a place to be from, the Singhi of Ankarana. Mm. I mean, that just sounds mythical. The Malagasy names, they've got a certain something about them, don't they? Yeah, I mean, that is 
just brilliant. And Ankarana is on sort of the northern tip of Madagascar. Um, and this singi is um, essentially a, lime, a limestone cast outcrop. Yes, which these limestone casts are pretty fantastic areas for finding new species, it seems. So it always is something coming out of the stonework, I guess is a way to describe yeah, it. Yeah, pretty much. And it's not surprising given the fact that if you were to imagine this landscape, it's kind of like Luna, except if the moon was insanely jagged and spiky. Yes. I mean, it's a very erodible rock that's been undermined by thousands of years of water undercutting it and creating all these bizarre caves and gullies, gullies and yeah, incredible spiky environment. I mean, Madagascar's cast landscapes are world famous for a reason. Yeah. And owing to the fact that it's so hard to get in there and their fairly sizable chunks swathes with, you know, unexplored interiors, there's new species coming out of them all the time. And um, this one is so named Madagascarophis lolo, um, which is possibly a microendemic snake. So it could be that its range is extremely tiny and very limited to this specific area. They only actually found one specimen. Yes. And that's quite a big deal for conservation because you've got these species with an incredibly restricted range, which in a blink of an eye can can disappear. There's Mantella cowanai, I think it is, which is another micro-endemic species from Madagascar, which is ludicrously restricted. And you've got one population of it. That's If you don't find these species, they can be gone before you even knew they were ever there. It's a real privilege to know that this species exists. Yeah, absolutely. And so the snake they found was an adult male. He was only 42 centimetres long. Little tiny guy. Really, really pretty snake. It's kind of like a mishmash of pinks and greys and some whites. Really nice little pattern down the back. And then the tail kind of ends in like some nice zigzags. Um, it really interesting features on his face as well. Very striking, huge eye, elliptical pupil, just a generally all-around great-looking snake. And if you look at the eye as well, there's like some marbling. Um, yeah, it's sort of reminiscent of your camouflaged geckos or, or yeah. something along those lines. It really is quite awesome-looking snake. And yeah, they just found the one, this little male. Um, and the name is interesting in its own right, Madagascarophis Lolo, because mm. um, Lolo means ghost in... Malagasy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Isn't there a lemur with that same name? Or is it a is it a common name? Um not that I'm aware of. I know that lemurs are sort of considered these ghosts of the forest, certainly the Shafakas. Ah, uh, that's the one. This is Is it sort of a folklore type thing? Sort of yeah, folklore that they are your ghosts of your ancestors. That's where this idea that it's Faddy, which is the Malagasy term for taboo, to eat and hunt lemurs. And actually, that's one of the reasons lemur hunting and consumption has jumped up a step, is people coming in from other places that don't hold these older beliefs and they don't they don't adhere to these, these faddy rules of not hunting lemurs and things like that. That's it. That's a real shame for the lemurs. It is, because it was a sort of nice bit of convenience that you had this old myth, which actually inadvertently, well, maybe not inadvertently, but it was conserving these these now endangered species. Yeah. 
all around a cool snake and they did some um, genetic investigation and it's definitely a new species morphologically it's extremely distinct so yeah yes it's on all accounts a new species <laughs> yeah no arguments from me um this pu- paper i should have mentioned is published in capaya which is quite a well-known herpetological yes, journal last year last year 2016 so yeah check it out um cat-eyed snakes in madagascar you got anything else you want to say about that cool little guy um no i just think it's a it's a lovely example that there's still a lot of species to find in madagascar there's still a lot to learn about madagascar i hope they find some more wonderful little species out there yeah i'm sure they will sure they will i'd like to myself (laughs) (laughs) one day yeah so uh ben what's this last one am i right in thinking it's a monitor lizard it is it's a rather stunning looking monitor lizard not technically a new species it's more a how do they term it? A reinstatement of an old species described in the 1830s by Lesson. So the paper is reinstatement of Baroness Dwara, uh, Lesson 1830, as a valid species with comments on the zoo geography of monitor lizards in the Bismarck Archipelago, Papua New Guinea. Written by Wajola, Kraus, Vatera, Linkfest, and Donellan. Uh, published in the Australian Journal of Zoology in 2017. So essentially what has happened is these guys went out to the Bismarck Archipelago, did a rather extensive survey of the islands that make it up, and took detailed uh, morphometrics of all the monitor lizards there, along with scale clips and all the sort of measurements you'd need to investigate taxonomy of these monitor lizards and discovered that a species that had been just lumped together in amongst one monitor species that covered all these islands is in fact unique and separate and was originally described in 1830 but has since sort of lost its way yeah and now it's back well yeah apparently uh, lessons 1830 description didn't even have any measurements or anything on it, so there's kind of questionable origin of this species initially anyway. Yes, yes, but the name was there and yeah. the location description was there, so it's enough to warrant That's how it works that name te- coming back, apparently. In, yeah, in taxonomy, if someone ever said it first, no matter how sort of uh, questionable it was, <laughs> you bring that back in. Well, there's been, yeah, I mean, there's been they've, they've, no- they've sort of cleaned that up a little bit. But, well, there's uh, some notable examples which annoy a lot of people, <laughs> I can tell you that much. Like, yeah. Yeah, the whole uh, brogamorous thing is an issue in so itself. It's, it's a touchy subject. Yeah. Taxonomists. <laughs> They're crazy. <laughs> but yeah, they, they did a similar sort of deal to the Madaga- uh, Madagascarophis Lolo. And it is distinct morphologically as well as phylogenetically. There's some admittedly sort of quite grim photos in the paper of museum specimens, as tends to be the case. Quite a hefty size monitor lizard, dark with rather nice patterning in this, this bright yellow. And the different species have a slightly different patterning of splotches. Yeah, and um, so the island this is actually from is called New Island. And it's thought that there was a lot more endemic species a few thousand years ago, but then obviously the advent of human beings kind of ruined mm. it for everyone. And well, an introduction of invasive species is exactly. always... You know, you've got your cats and rats, which come with humans wherever they go. And cane toads in this case as well. <laughs> and cane toads. Cane toads on New Island. Yeah. 
However, one of the lizards are weathering the storm there. I mean, for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of instances where monster lizards do really well alongside humans, so it could be that these wily little lizards are, you know, they're scuttling away at the right times, they're feeding off our scraps. Yes. They're probably taking full advantage of the rats that are running around and possibly <laughs> even the cats and kittens as well. So Yeah, there are good examples of monitor lizards doing just fine in pretty heavily urbanised environments. Are you thinking about Bangkok? I'm thinking of the ones in Lupini Park in Bangkok. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those guys living side by side with humans, not a problem. They're living the, the monitor lizard dream. Yeah, well, they all look fat and healthy. Mm. <laughs> or as healthy as a fat lizard can do in the yeah. middle of a city. Lumpini Park is a park in Thailand which is just rife with big fat monitor lizards that eat. I think there's a lot of... Um, ornamental fish in the waterways and then there's just garbage yeah there's rubbish I'm sure they just eat food scraps yeah people feed them as well so they do quite well but yeah a very cool monitor lizard which has survived human encroachment yes and sort of faded and come back and it's still there it's good to see and it's really cool to see that even in 2015 2016 well this uh, is 2017 2017 yeah even now, big monitor lizards that are over a metre long are still being discovered. It just goes to show the amount of diversity that's still around. Yeah, granted to the untrained eye, I mean, if I turned up in uh, the Bismarck Archipelago, I don't think I could tell these guys apart. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be with your uh, your, your little... Ta- your little uh, you'd be there with your, your reptile key. Oh, it's one of those. It's, oh, surely, yeah. it's surely one of those. Look at the yellow on it. I would yeah. be exactly the same. Yeah. When really you'd have to dig into scale counts. And I mean, if generally monitor lizards aren't the friendliest of lizards. They're kind of a triple threat of defences, haven't they? Yeah. They've got the claws, the tail and the teeth. And they've also got guile as well. They're not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, brilliant, brilliant little lizard. Fascinating paper. Right. Well, I think that pretty much rounds up this episode, does it not? Yes, I think so. I think we learned a bit about frog acoustics, how snakes move around, use of pine savanna, and highlighted a couple of cool species. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I would encourage everyone to go and check out these papers for themselves, have a read, and then, uh, yeah, let us know what you thought. And if we did misspeak or gave any wrong information, let us know and we'll publish oh. corrections in the next episode. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's going to... Yeah. yeah, there's always going to be a need for corrections. We're fallible. Who isn't? <laughs> if you want to get in touch, our email address is herphighlights at gmail.com. It's not herpatologicalhighlights at gmail.com. Herphighlights at gmail.com. Yes. Ben's tired of that joke. <laughs> if it bounces what? back, it's the wrong email. It's her highlights. You don't want to say the wrong email. I think ambiguity is good in any communicative message, as <laughs> demonstrated by our annual friends earlier on in the episode. Anyway, thank you for listening. Hope to hope you can join us in two weeks' time. Yeah, cheers. I think we'll be possibly looking at a, a boa special yeah we're currently gathering together some papers on boas i say we ben's been digging around furiously so turned up some good stuff we've I got a couple of good ones there's definitely already. one i read on boa constriction a little while ago which is really cool so hopefully we'll find that get that get that studied by the time we record again excellent cheers yeah.